You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Uh, let's start out with a word of prayer. Um, Father, we just come before you as always, um, just wanting to learn about you, learning about uh, who you are and, and what it means to be a part of your kingdom. Uh, we thank you for uh, your word that you've gave, given us. We thank you for the gospel of Matthew and, and how it teaches us and trains us. Uh, Father, uh, I pray that um, to, in today's uh, time in the word uh, that you would allow our hearts to be open. Uh, sometimes we're kind of stubborn against your ways, and, uh, and we just want to be softened uh, to that today, Father. So I pray that you would do that through your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would speak to us, uh, you would use uh, your words uh, to, to change our hearts, uh, God, and, and you would remove me out of the way uh, to, to, to do that, Father. So we just thank you for your time. Thank you we can gather together as a church and just be a family, God. Um, just thank you for just that worship experience earlier, being able to, to sing about your kingdom together as a, as a family um, and all that that involves, Father. Just looking forward to, to actually being in your kingdom physically at some point in the future, Father. It's just an amazing reality uh, for us as a church to sing about. So it's just a beautiful time, Father, and I just really enjoyed it, and thank you for that. So I uh, thank you for our time today as we open up your word. I ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not quick to accept uh, blame uh, or responsibility for, for my actions. Uh, it's always somebody else's fault, right? I mean, naturally, if it was my fault, I would change. So the problem must be out there. It's not, it's not me. Um, and I, and I was thinking about that this week, and, and uh, it was kind of ironic as I thought about it, because I, the, the problems in our economy are the government's fault, right? Uh, the problems in the government are the other party's fault. Uh, the problems in my marriage are my spouse's fault. The problems in my job are my boss's fault. The problems in my personal life are my parents' fault. And the problem in my children's life are their teacher's fault, right? I mean, that's naturally how we think. Owning up to our responsibility and our contribution to the conflict is not inherent in us as human beings. We can see this all the way from the Garden of Eden. The first humans that ever lived, when they sinned, what did they do? They blamed each other. They blamed somebody else, right? Adam, it was Eve. Eve, it was the serpent. This is a part of our broken humanity. Yet at the heart of the gospel is this thing that we call repentance, And repentance is a verbal acknowledgement of wrongdoing, starting with your confession, right? It's a a confession of wrongdoing before God, but it can't just be that. It's a a turning away from something, ideally wrong behavior, thoughts, actions, and then towards something, ideally that being God and his ways and his kingdom. In our passage this week, John the Baptist is going to call the people to a repentance and baptism as a sign of entrance into the kingdom of God. And then what Matthew is going to do in this passage is he's going to take a series of events that didn't all take place at the same time, and he's going to put them together as one event. And his goal is to show us what repentance is supposed to be. He's going to give us an example of what repentance is not in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then he's going to give us an example of, of what repentance is in Jesus's baptism. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to read all of Matthew chapter 3. So I would invite you guys to stand as, uh, as we read this together. 
Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were coming out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to him, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the, coming, the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he clears his threshing floor and gathers his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You may be seated. Uh, In our passage that we just read, uh, John is calling the people to repentance and baptism as a sign of entrance into the kingdom of God. Well, last week in our story when we read, uh, we read the story of Joseph and Jesus and Mary going into Egypt uh, to flee uh, from Herod and then God calling them out of Egypt and ultimately allowing them to settle in Galilee where Jesus is raised. Well, in today's story, the next chapter of Matthew, the story picks back up. And so it's 25 years later. Jesus has grown. He's an adult. He spent all of his uh, life in Galilee. We don't have a whole lot of details about that. There's a few stories in there and in other Gospels. But the story just starts out with this guy named John the Baptist. Now, Matthew, like I said earlier, is being really intentional. And he he has a point, as Matthew always does, right, that Jesus is the king And, hey, the king is coming, right? And John is really going to, Matthew is going to drive home this point that because Jesus is the the king that we've been waiting for, because he's actually come, uh, now a response is demanded from that king, which is understandable, right? The king is here. All of the people inside of his kingdom have to choose how they are going to respond to him. And John says the proper response to the coming of the king is repentance, right? The kingdom's here. What we've been waiting for this whole time of this promised king, he's here, he's Jesus, right? Now we need to, need to respond to that. Well, in the story of Matthew, after, after it, he talks about his message to repent and be baptized, he then goes on and Matthew says that John is the, is the fulfillment of a prophecy, right? And you can see it here in verse, uh, in verse 3. Uh, for this is the one who has spoken by the prophet Isaiah uh, when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, repent. 
of the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he quotes out of the book of Isaiah about someone who's going to declare the coming king. But then he goes on in verses 4 and 5 and 6, and he gives us these really interesting details, right? When you're reading a book and, and you see very specific details, there's a reason, right? I mean, it's, the Bible was authored by God, but he used human authors. And these guys chose specific words and specific events because they're trying to make a point, right? And so in our, in our story today, what do we see about this, this, this guy, this guy, John the Baptist? He's, it's kind of interesting, right? He's clothed in camel's hair, which is, let's be honest, not normal. He's, he's dressed like a nomad, someone that lives out in the wilderness, that lives excluded from uh, society. He has a, a leather belt around his waist. He's eating locusts and wild honey. Okay, those are interesting details. And he's at this place uh, outside of Jerusalem uh, in the wilderness. You know, it's not an easy place to get to. It's a really hard, difficult trek. Imagine us going, you know, kind of if, if, uh, if uh, Jerusalem is kind of up on a mountain. So they had to come kind of down this mountain and ravines and way out into the wilderness to the Jordan River uh, where, John, <coughs> where John the Baptist is, is baptizing people at the, at the Jordan. What's the, what's the point of all these details, right? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Why did, Matthew and, why did Matthew include him? Why does it matter what John's wearing? Why does it matter what John's eating? Why does it matter where he's baptizing people? Those are all really important details because, like I said, Matthew is trying to make a point. Now, there's no... You know, Matthew doesn't say, and this is why I included those details. So we kind of have to search for it, right? We have to really dig in and try to figure out why those details are there. And here's why I think those de- details are there. From the stuff that I read and, and, uh, and, a, and a couple other guys that, that I read, um, I think that the, the physical description of John the Baptist and the place that he is at is meant to represent the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament of how people come to God. Okay, so kind of that's kind of the, 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 what I think Matthew is trying to get across to us as as a as readers. So think about the Old Testament and think about how people came to God. It wasn't easy, was it? There was a sacrificial system involved for your sins, going and eating animals, bringing those animals to the temple, allowing those animals to be sacrificed for your sin. Then there was a priesthood, right, that had to be the representatives for you before God. You couldn't just go and offer your own sacrifice. It involved the priest that was in that. Not only that, you had this law that you have to live by. And the law was very detailed in every aspect of your life. And if you offered the right sacrifices at the right place, in the right way, and lived the right life, then you were allowed into God's kingdom in the Old Testament. It's a pretty hard way, isn't it, Right? And so imagine John in a difficult place, dressed very poorly, right? Offering sacrifice, offering baptism at the Jordan River. Now the Jordan River in the Old Testament was the dividing line between the people being in the wilderness and the people coming into the promised land. So if you remember 40 years of wandering, uh, Joshua led them across the Jordan River. And what did they do? They built an altar before God. Our time of wandering has ended. Our time of punishment has ended. Now we get to enter into rest. So let's build a monument so that we never remember. John chooses that place to baptize, right? It's that dividing line between the the hard way to the, the easy way of resting in God's promises. 
So now we see John the Baptist, and he's, he's representing the exact same, same thing, is the, the hard, difficult way of the Old Testament that people came to God, and this new grace-filled way in the New Testament that people come to God. And you say, well, you're kind of stretching it there, buddy. Like, it's just the guy's clothing. He's just eating bugs. Where in the world did you get all that stuff from? Well, look at, look at the, the, the verse in Isaiah that Matthew chooses to represent what John the Baptist is doing. So in your Bible, uh, flip over to Isaiah chapter 40, because this, uh, this is where that, that, uh, that quote actually, <coughs> actually comes from. So in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah, prophet to Judah, people aren't in exile, right? Yet they're, they're in the promised land, but there's a lot of, a lot of difficult stuff going on in the kingdom. And and uh, God tells Isaiah, hey, my, these people are going to go into exile, but hey, I'm going to bring them out of exile at some point. So in Isaiah chapter 40, I just want us to read it here in, in, in verse 1. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare <coughs> is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so Isaiah is talking about the comfort that the people are going to receive from the, God's going to rescue them out of exile. So they haven't even gone into exile right yet. In, in Isaiah's life. And God is telling Isaiah, my people are going to go into exile, but I am going to comfort them. I am going to pardon their sins. And in verse 2 here, he says that they're going to receive a, like a, a double pardon, right? I mean, they deserve to suffer. They deserve exile. They deserve to be separate from God. But he says, her iniquity will be pardoned and she will receive from the Lord's hand double, Right? So what's he talking about there? It, you know, them coming out of exile doesn't actually pardon their sins, right? And, and, and then it says there's this voice that's going to declare in the future, there's going to be a guy in the wilderness and he's going to say, make straight the path of the Lord. Make straight the way to come to the Lord. And then we have in verse 4 and 5, we have this description as interesting of valleys being raised up and mountains and mountains coming down and crooked roads being made straight. What in the world is going on in this passage? Why is Matthew choosing that passage to quote about John the Baptist? Because God, through Isaiah, was talking about a future event that was going to happen where the people's sin would be pardoned. They would receive a double blessing. That A king is going to come, and that king is going to make the path to God straight, right? So if the Old Testament is a difficult, curvy road. So Isaiah, in this passage, he's thinking about how do you get from the wilderness to Jerusalem? He's like, that's a hard road. It involves climbing over hills and over rocks to climb up to the city. And Isaiah is saying there's something that's going to happen in the future that's going to change the way that people get to God. And it's going to take this crooked, rugged, difficult, bloody mess, and he's going to make it a clear, concise, and I would even say easy way to come to God. That's the same message that John is preaching. 
is, but he's living it. He's out in the wilderness to represent that old, difficult way to go to God. And John's saying, hey, there's a new way to get to God. The king is coming. Hey, guess what? All you have to do is repent, right? I mean, it's a beautiful message when you look at it that way. If that's really what, 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 the, what the heart of Matthew is trying to, is trying to say here is, hey, all you, all you have to do is, is repent because the, the king's here, right? No more sacrificial system. No more law. No more priesthood. No more temple no more heritage. It doesn't matter who your relatives were. And by the way, it's now available to all people. And we see in our passage in Matthew that all people are coming out to be baptized from all these different regions. And they're repenting before God, right? It's a, it's a good thing. Man, re- repentance is, is a, it's amazing because it means that justice and mercy have come. So then what changed, Right? What's different about the Old Testament and the way that people come to God? What's different about the New Testament? Instead of all the sacrifices that the people had to do, now there's one sacrifice, right? It's Jesus. And that's why in the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus physically, he looks at Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because John knows, hey, there's the sacrifice. There's the way that the the road is going to be made straight to get to God. It's through a sacrifice. It's through a substitution for the people so that they can now come to God. And our response to that sacrifice, thank you, God. Yes, I I am a sinner, God. I need that grace. But what do we do? Well, it's not my fault. It must be somebody else's fault right? The problem is somebody else. And that's at the contrary to the gospel, because we think that repentance is a bad thing. It's not because we're repenting to a good God, right? And repentance, church, is not about just uh, something that we come to this table and do. It's not just about what we say with our mouth. It's about a change of our hearts, right? I mean, that's what God has always been concerned about, is, is this, the change of his people's hearts. That's why in the book of Jeremiah, when he talked about the new covenant that was coming, this new way, this, this amazing new work that God was going to do that would be so amazing that it would forever change the way that, that the people interact with God, he says that new work is going to be written on the hearts of the people. It's going to change their hearts. Because when you meet God and you encounter his grace, it changes you. It changes the way that you live. It changes the way that you respond to each other and the grace that, you've, that you're extended back out to other people. If you can't give grace to one another, if the problem is always somebody else and there's something wrong with them, that's because you haven't experienced a whole lot of grace in your life. It's because you haven't been forgiven of much. But when you come before God humbly saying, oh my gosh, look at all the stuff that he saved me from. Look at all this idolatry that he saved me from. Look at all this wandering that he saved me from. And then you're able to extend grace back out to other people. And that, that grace is modeled in repentance and it's modeled in our actions as God's people. So Matthew drives that point home real hard of what repentance is. And then as a really helpful illustrator, he gives us a few examples. He says, okay, you want to see what repentance is not? Here's what it's not starting here in verse 7. 
But when he saw many, <coughs> many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid low to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we have two groups of people who make this trek out to the wilderness like so many other people are doing, like Jesus does. They're called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they play a pretty important role in the gospel and in the book of Matthew. They're going to come up over and over again. And so this is our first introduction to them. The Pharisees are, are a religious group inside of the, the, the Jews who are very popular with the common people. And this group of religious leaders find their identity in all of the right things that they do. They follow the law of the Old Testament to the T. I mean, they make sure that they do not miss any part of the law. Not only that, they actually add more laws to the laws of the Old Testament to make sure that they never break a law in the Old Testament. And because of that, because of their adding to God's laws, and because of their identity that they find in their good works, they think that they deserve entrance into God's kingdom, right? So they're coming out to be baptized having nothing to repent of. Why would they have anything to repent of? They follow the law, right? Church, Pharisees still exist today. We just don't call them Pharisees. But the church is still full of people who think that they deserve entrance into God's kingdom because of their right behavior. Oh, look, I did this, you know, so I deserve in. Oh, I do more good things than bad things, so then God must let me into his kingdom, right? That's not how God's kingdom works. Repentance is the way into his kingdom, not any of, our, any of our good works. The second group that we see here is called the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were uh, an aristocratic group of leaders. They held the highest positions of leadership outside of, uh, like, uh, Herod and his family, inside of, inside of the Israel. And they held the priesthood positions, right? They were, they were the priests. Well, they believed that the most important thing what it meant to be a part of God's kingdom was to have position and to have authority. That's what God's kingdom was all about. It was all about the priesthood, you know. And they were willing to compromise on what God's word said in order to have power and authority. That was what was most important to them. Do those people still exist in the church today? Yeah. I mean, do we still, is our goal position and power and authority, is that the thing that gives you your identity as the authority that you have? And that no one can question you and can question what, what you're doing? Is it maybe your, the fact that you grew up in the church? Or the fact that your parents were really good Christians? Or you were in the youth ministry for a long time? Oh yeah, I'm in the God's kingdom because I've always been here. Look, look at this position that I have. That's not what God's kingdom is about. It's not about power. It's not about authority. That's not how we enter into his kingdom. We enter in through repentance. And so because of these religious people coming out to be baptized, having nothing to repent of, John has some harsh words for them, doesn't he? He says, you are, are going to be judged severely because of your actions. It's because of your hypocrisy, you brood of vipers, right? And he gives us these really hard analogies. He says, you know, you're like a tree that's not producing fruit and, and God's got an axe in his hand, and he's going to cut you down and throw you in the fire, right? 
He says God's like a, like a farmer after he's taken all the wheat in and he takes his winnowing fork, his tool, and he separates the wheat from the chaff. And he takes the wheat and he puts it in his, in his barn and he takes the chaff and he burns it. And he says religious people who are unwilling to repent have that same judgment coming. Because although they may be religious in nature and in their actions, they're not a part of God's kingdom. Because they're not willing to humbly submit themselves to his rule and his reign in their lives. It's a hard word, isn't it? But that's what Matthew is trying to get across to us. He wants us to know what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. Well then, Matthew is going to go on and he is going to give us an an amazing example of what repentance does look like. And he says, you know what, what repentance is? It's, uh, it's, it's all about dying to yourself and dying to your ways. I mean, that's what baptism is, right? The way that we enter into God's kingdom is the same way that we get out of this world. It's through death, right? That's what baptism represents. We repent, and then we come up, and, and wherever we get baptized, we go under the water dying to ourselves, to our old way, to our old nature, and then coming back out of the water, right? And saying, okay, I'm going to live God's way. So who represents this best? (coughs) Jesus, right? So Matthew takes Jesus coming out and he slaps the event in here with with all of these other things. And we see it here in verse 13. Jesus comes out from Galilee to be baptized and John's like, hey, I'm not going to baptize you. You're Jesus. You're the Messiah. Hey, would you baptize me? And Jesus says, no, I need you to be, I need you to baptize me. He says, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. What does that mean, to fulfill all righteousness? Why did John need to baptize Jesus? Jesus had never sinned, right? I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out wanting baptism, but not wanting to repent. Jesus comes out and repents of something that he had never done. Because he had never sinned. And he was baptized. Why did Jesus have to repent of something he had never done? Because he is the substitution for us, isn't he? He's a substitutionary sacrifice for us. And so I want us to really, really kind of try to understand this this picture here that God gives us. We're called to repent as entrance into his kingdom. The Pharisees and the Sadducees represent us thinking that we don't need to repent. And then Jesus comes as the substitution, repenting for us. And John baptizes Jesus. And when Jesus goes under the water, it represents a future excruciating event where the sins of the world will be placed upon him. True repentance will come through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what Isaiah was talking about when he, when he says that, that the, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's what Jesus' baptism represents, is the ultimate death, the ultimate sacrifice, and the ultimate resurrection that will take place through Jesus Christ. And what does God do in response to Jesus' baptism? This excruciating event where Jesus is going to suffer 
tremendously for the sins of the world. He comes up out of the water and God says, that's my son of whom I am pleased. God was pleased to kill his son so that we could be with him. And we have the the beautiful picture of the dove coming down, God's presence. But let's, can we understand that concept? God was pleased to send Jesus. I'm not to blame. It's not my fault. I deserve to be in God's kingdom. And then what do we see in God? I'm going to send my son for you because I love you. And I know that you can't get to me any other way. This is the only way. So know the love of the Father as the sun comes down. Church, today, let's repent and and embrace the love of our Father. I mean, that's what it means to follow God, repent, confessing our sins, confessing when we've gone astray, when we've gone our our own way. It's a good part of, of God's plan because who are you confessing to? A Father who is pleased to send His Son to die for you. Man, I'll, I'll submit to that God any day. I'll humbly, humbly subject myself to the reign of the king because he's a good king, isn't he? He's done a great work through Jesus Christ. As we come to the tables today, that's the mentality that I want us to have as a church. When we break that bread off, remember the sacrifice that was paid. Remember what repentance truly is. And, and, and embrace God, right? And let him come in and continue <coughs> to change and sanctify you through Jesus Christ. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, after um, Isaiah talks about this coming king, this coming king, in the rest of chapter 40, what he does is he says, okay, Israel, I know it's hard for you, like, I, don't, I know you don't understand, so let me remind you about how good God is. And in the rest of chapter 40, Isaiah says, here is God. Here, comfort, comfort my people. You know, you want to know what comfort is? God. And let me, let me explain God to you so that you will know him. And today I want to do the same thing for you as a church. Is, and, and, and for me also, I want to remember the greatness of God to set my heart right as I come to the tables. So how we're going to end our service today is with a reading of Isaiah 40. So uh, when we pray in just a second, the band's going to come back up and they're going to to play and read Isaiah 40. But I want you guys to look at it up on the screens. And I want you to really think about those words and think about God's greatness. And then when you come to the table, I I hope that your picture of who God is And what it means to repent and be a part of his kingdom has grown. And that you're repenting to a good God in your life. So let's pray together. Let's uh, let's hear from the word of God. And then let's repent. Uh, Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, for this passage in Matthew. I thank you that, that it's only repentance that we get to enter into your kingdom. That is so incredibly beautiful, God. That all we have to do is submit to your rule in our lives. The the hard work has been done through Jesus Christ. He made the path straight. He made the way easy to get to the king. He's the one that that radically changed the way (coughs) that we interact with you. Mountains were laid 
were laid to rest. Valleys were raised up. What Jesus Christ did so radically changed the way that people received grace and forgiveness. Father, would you open our, our hearts to know that today? And Father, would we be a people who willingly repent? God, a, a people who, who willingly subject themselves to your reign in joy, who don't see your word as condemnation or, or as God trying to bully us around, but we see it as the best way to live in the kingdom. Father, you, when Jesus Christ came, he brought a new kingdom, a new way that we interact with you. And it's such a beautiful, grace-filled, loving act that Jesus Christ did. Will we see it as that? Father, soften our hearts to your ways as we come and we hear from you. God, would you just open our hearts to know your greatness in this place today? In your name, amen. Climb a high mountain, Zion. You're the preacher of good news. Raise your voice. Make it good and loud, Jerusalem. You're the preacher of good news. Speak loud and clear. Don't be timid. Tell the cities of Judah, look, your God, look at him. God, the master, comes in power, ready to go into action. He's going to pay back his enemies and reward those who have loved him. Like a shepherd, he will care for his flock, gathering the lambs in his arms, hugging them as he carries them, leading the nursing ewes to good pasture. Who has scooped up the ocean in his two hands or measured the sky between his thumb and little finger? Who has put all the earth's dirt into one of his baskets, weighed each mountain and hill? Who could ever have been told what God taught him his business? What expert would he have gone to for advice? What school would he attend to learn justice? What God do you suppose might have taught him what he knows, showed him how things work? Why the nations are but a drop in a bucket, a mere smudge on a window. Watch him sweep up the islands like so much dust off the floor. There aren't enough trees in Lebanon, nor enough animals in those vast forests to furnish adequate fuel and offerings for his worship. All the nations add up to simply nothing before him. Less than nothing is more like it, a minus. So he even comes close to being like God. To whom or what can you compare him? Some no-god idol? Ridiculous. It's made in a workshop, cast in bronze, given a thin veneer of gold and draped with silver filigree. Or perhaps someone who will select a fine wood, all of would say, that won't rot then hire a woodcarver to make a no-god giving special care to its base so it won't tip over. Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? God sits high above the round ball of earth. The people look like mere ants. He stretches out the skies like a canvas, yes, like a tent canvas to live under. He ignores what all princes say and do. The rulers of the earth count for nothing. Prince and, and rulers don't amount to much. Like seeds barely rooted, just sprouted, they shrivel when God blows on them. Like flecks of chaff, they're gone with the wind. So who is like me? 
Who holds a candle to me, says the holy? Look at the night skies. Who do you think made all this? Who marches this army of stars out each night, counts them off, calls each by name? So magnificent, so powerful, and never overlooks a single one. Why would you ever complain, O Jacob, or whine, Israel, saying, God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Don't you know anything? Haven't you been listening? God doesn't come and go. God lasts. He's creator of all you can see or imagine. He doesn't get tired out. He doesn't pause to catch his breath. He knows everything, inside and out. He energizes those who get tired, gives fresh strength to the dropouts. For even young people tire and drop out. Young folk in their prime stumble and fall, but those who wait upon God get fresh strength. They spread their wings and soar like eagles, and they run and don't get tired. They walk and don't lag behind. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.